Welcome everybody back to Apex Mind. Adam with you here as always. And on this week's episode, I am very pleased to welcome to the show, Katja. And Katja, I know I'm going to mispronounce your last name. I'm going to go with Schipperheim and please correct me because I know I'm probably wrong there. It's a really, really good effort. Uh, this is Schipperheim. It's actually Dutch Flemish. So, but you did it really good. I, I tried. Thank you. I appreciate you being kind there. So uh, Katja, I know that you are a uh, book author, a keynote speaker. You have a very long um, track record and background. Do you want to give the audience a little bit of a, a summary of what your background is and what you do? Well, my background is a nerd-loving person. Um, so I work with children. I work with adults. I always talk about learning, about growing, about well-being. But I'm a little bit a geek myself. So I love robots, I love the future, I love technology. So I brought those two passions for people and technology together. And that's actually what I've been doing the last 20 years, both as a keynote speaker, as a consultant for some companies and executive workshops, but also with children. Um, in the last years, I had 15,000 young children in my works about technology, about well-being, about living, growing up in virtual world. So. That's actually what I do, and I love to do. That that's an awesome combination of of skill sets and interests. Um, for anyone who's watching the video, Katja just released a new book. I have it right here. It's called Learning Ecosystems, and it does talk about the the future of of learning and you know work workplace training. It talks about technology, and, and there's a lot of different concepts in it. We'll dive into in this episode, but I like that uh, Katja also talked about how. It's not just about adult learning. There's also about children's learning. And we hear those topics talked about so differently. So Katja, before we jump into the concepts from the book, I know you've been, you just released the book recently. You've been on a whirlwind tour. How has the uh, the launch of the book going and, and the uh, places you've visited, how's everything been going so far? One word, overwhelming. I have never this. Um, I have to say, I was in Vilnius last week, then I was in Abu Dhabi, now I'm going to Casablanca, virtually in Curaçao in South Africa. And you know what is the overwhelming part? People saying thank you. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so I didn't expect it. Um, and I think, especially also a lot of women who are normally not so much tech lovers, I know stereotypes, I'm a woman myself. But making it easy to understand, talking about children, and the book is not about children at all, but relating to this, um, I, I think that's why it's for so many people interesting to hear and why I get so much feedback. I'm, I'm muting LinkedIn by, the, by now. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I know we hear so much about accessibility and it's a very important area um, but it sounds like your book is reaching people that may not have had similar types of books reach out to them in the past. And I think that's very powerful. Um, well, let, let's jump into the book itself. So what what drove you to write this book and, and get this book that kind of combines learning and technology and looking towards the future, how we can stay ahead of all the changes that are coming to us? Well, I always say if my father was a baker, I could bake a cake. I can't make a cake. So I grew up in a family, one person in learning and development, the other, an engineer building robots. So there came my passion from. In 2012, I started 
inventing uh, technology platforms myself for a big corporate university. So I've always been in learning and technology. And at that time, uh, I wanted to pursue a PhD, um, but I was also a mom. And I had a 10-year-old daughter standing next to me, where I'm sitting here actually right now, asking me, mom, mom, I want to go on Facebook. And I said, no, no, you can't. You're only 10. Oh, mom, you're so old, she said to me. You don't get our world. We children, we want to be connected all the time. All the other children, they are connected after school. They play together, they learn together. And you know what, mom? They do their homework together. So if my grades are below theirs, that's your fault. What are you going to do about it? And that was an epiphany for me. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I stuck in looking at adults and, and universities and, and trying to engage people in self-learning and, and enjoying learning? Children, they already do this. So that was a time I changed. I didn't pursue any PhD, but a lot of the concepts that I wrote out then, like the learning maturity model, the learnscapes, the lean learning, was actually something that I was working on back then. As from then, I also started working with children, 15,000 children in my workshops. So this book combines everything that I've learned in the last eight years with adults, with corporates, with startups, and with children. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, well, I, I think I want to dive into the the children discussion first, because a lot of times we hear so much about children's learning and adult learning being different, androgyny and pedagogy. I, I, I don't even work as much with children, but um, ped pedagogy. I, but either way, we're talking about that learning being separate. Um, you know, the world's changed so much just in our lifetimes. I remember growing up and technology wasn't a big part of my life. Um, if I wanted to study with my friends, I would get on my bike and I would ride a bike over to their house and we would study in, in the living room. And the most advanced video games were a Nintendo and there really wasn't internet in the home. And so the, the world's changed so much just in the last 30 or 40 years. What, how can you dispel those myths that, you know, children's learning, adult learning, they're completely separate things. We should treat them separately. What can... We, we learn from children's learning and, and apply that to how adults learn. Well, that's actually a chapter in my book. It's all about competences that children still possess and that we as adults, we actually grown out of them or even worse, they didn't allow us to be like that. For example, curiosity. A child is curious. That's how they learn. They learn by doing. If you tell a child, don't ride that bike because you might fall and you will hurt yourself, they will go, hmm, this looks interesting. As an adult, we're like, oh, let's not do this. Even more, uh, I was one of these annoying children at school, always asking why, why, why? And they don't like it. Even when you work um, in an organization, if you always ask why, people will think you're annoying, but that's actually how we learn and grow. The same with curiosity, experimenting, empathy, having all these competences, that's what helps children to learn, relearn, learn. Having this growth mindset instead of fear. You know, for us, learning seems like this tantalous torment, something we have to do. For them is young children, yay, we can do something new. It's, it's the mindset that's completely different. Yeah, yeah, I want to dive into that a little bit more because you talked about curiosity, you talked about the... Um, excitement to learn. Whereas as you get older, it becomes more of, I have to learn this thing. And, and we tie that to out, outwork learning. 
I mean, I feel like a vast majority of the at-work learning that's assigned by L&D teams is compulsory. It, you have to do this. Um, you have to take this course in this way, right? Um, kids can learn about things that, that they want to, right? Um, we see nowadays all these video games like Minecraft or Roblox that are very popular, and kids will spend hours on YouTube learning about that. So that's a fun thing, right? Um, but how, how can that desire to learn or, or that kind of free will to learn the things they want translate to things that maybe you do have to learn this compliance thing at your job or this new product launch at your job? You know, those are kind of separate issues. So how can we, we marry those two? Well, it is separate, but um, you just said it actually. It feels like compulsory, mandatory. You have to do it. It's your checklist. You know, I just said the why question. I, when they tell me, learn this, I will ask people, why do I have to learn this? What's in it for me? How can I grow myself? What's in it for my company? What's in it for society? We always tend to forget the why it's important, especially with uh, some boring learnings that seem to be boring. I always say if we have internal communication and L&D working better together with the strategy, where do we want to go with the company? So why do we need to learn this? And it can also be if you don't learn this, you will be out of a job in two years because you need to be compliant. But just sending learning stuff over is the first mistake. If you say to a child, do this, learn this, they don't jump up either. Yeah, yeah. Humans in general don't like being told what to do. Um, and, and the stifling of whys is, is never a good thing. Um, you know, I, I think, I think there's some areas that a lot of training teams don't, or even HR teams don't do well in, which is like marketing, you know, how to get people to want to, to go explore their things, or even just making something tied to what people want. Um, and that comes down to the design, the delivery and, and so on, um, but but let's shift a little bit to the technology piece because technology is is moving so rapidly and I, I feel like unfortunately in the L and D space technology means e learning LMS you know things that I guess are a technology backbone but what are where do you see technology coming into how we learn and really enhancing some of these things to maybe make it more accessible or more desirable for people in the future? Well, I think. The immersive part, of course, and I'm not talking about the hypes of what we hear now, metaverse, metaverse, and I know in my book, Learning Ecosystems, I have some chapters on the promise of the metaverse, but it's not about the technology alone. In the last part of my book, I will explain that technology is only a byproduct of the learning journey. It is tailoring an experience, a journey for people, and you will see, and explain it, Roblox. Again, children, they want to be in this creator part of Roblox. They want to create stuff. And sometimes they get stuck. And think of the moment of learning. They get stuck and they really need the answer now. So they will find the shortest way to the answer to overcome their problem. That can be a YouTube, that can be a friend. If you see these kids on Fortnite, they have in their ear here a friend to think about the strategy. They look at YouTube, they're experimenting. So for me, learning and technology, it's all about making learning lean. 
the shortest way without obstacles to learn what you need in the moment that you can apply it. So you see that I'm bringing together a lot of theories like five moments you need with lean learning development, what I wrote myself in 2012. So I think that's the first part, creating easy journeys, creating a learning culture, people want to learn. And only then it's about technology. And then, well, creating technology learnscapes for me is as playing with Lego. Every part is a part of the ecosystem. And that can be a micro-learning platform linked to a LMS with longer learnings, linked to a VR system, linked to a wearable, whatever. You just link it to make this journey relatable for the people in it. So that's actually very, very fun to do as well. Yeah, I, I think all those elements that you're talking about have to work together. And, and I love that you talk about lean and you talk about five moments of need. I'm a big fan of Bob Mosher and, and the performance support focus. You know, if we can take as much of, of the learning away from just obligatory courses and these lengthy trainings, then times that people do get trained, I think they'll appreciate them more because it's not coming at them all the time for every little thing. Um, you know, I'm the kind of worker who, if I need to know something, a lot of times I'm going to go to Google or YouTube or reach out to a coworker over going to my company's LMS catalog, just because I find my answers faster and I can implement them faster and experiment. Um, you know, I recently learned Smartsheet as a tool. I'd used similar tools in the past, but I'm not going to go take a eight hour Smartsheet training. No, I'm going to look at the function I need to learn, go, go look it up. And then I'm going to execute on it and maybe learn from some of my mistakes or how I'm, I'm building that sheet out. And I think a lot of adults are like that for, let's just say non-critical tasks. I, I know people like pilots and surgeons, and you know you might have to have a lot of learning up front for certain types of, of work. But a lot of the work that many of us do, especially in the information space, if a mistake's not gonna be quite as critical as, as it is for certain lines of work, like I said, a surgeon or a pilot. Yeah, but you say now a surgeon. Also in this area, in healthcare, they use so cool technologies. I, I actually interviewed uh, Raphael Grossman, uh, the surgeon in my book, who was using Google Glasses in 2013 when he was uh, performing an operation so that his students really had front row seats learning from him operating. He even made it social. So also students who couldn't attend these universities could follow from Africa, from Asia. Today, he is using uh, augmented reality. He's using VR. He's using haptic sensing to educate students to perform operations. So this, for some people, might sound like the metaverse, but he's been doing this for many years. So I think especially in healthcare, a lot of innovation is already there. So I always say like, if they already use it in, in healthcare for life of people is at stake, why are we then hesitant to, to implement it in a simple process in a bank, for example? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a lot of us, when we hear the term metaverse, we might think about the the marketing of the metaverse, which has been very like cartoon based, and it looks like it's for entertainment. You see people in virtual theme parks and things like that. And I'm sure that's absolutely one aspect of the metaverse. But you're right that there's also 
maybe more realistic contexts, um, di different types of environments. All the metaverse is, is the internet, but the internet with us feeling like we're there versus just typing and clicking like in the past. So, you know, I, I, I like that surgeon example. I've also seen for retail um, store robbery examples, a VR simulation with real people. It looks like you're watching a video, but you're feeling it. And the person has a weapon and it feels like you're there. And I mean, that's much more realistic than being in a classroom with someone simulating it. And so you can, you can know what you would do if you have your heart rate escalated and, you know, you felt like you were in that moment. I, I think VR and AR have a lot of potential, but unfortunately the marketing is so much around entertainment and fun and you see these cartoon avatars and, and that can be kind of a turnoff to a lot of people, especially maybe the older generations. Yeah, but there is even much more because you talk about marketing and we talk about NFTs because Metaverse also has this um, blockchain aspect to it that many forget. We think of VR, we think of Meta because Mark Zuckerberg is a good marketer, by the way. He talks about meta, but there is also this aspect of um, NFTs. Can you imagine that a, a, a little girl or a little boy on Roblox is creating a cool uh, environment and many other players go into this game. So this young person, he earns a lot of Robux, which is actually blockchain, peer validated. You are a really good game developer. By the time this kid is 16, he wants to apply in your company. I want to work for you. I want to become a game developer for you. And you will go like, can I see your degree? Yeah, here, my Robux. That's a degree. But companies and universities, they don't accept it. So these poor kids needs to go to the university to get a bachelor or a master in game development. And he already knows much more as all his professors together. So you see that the metaverse for learning it's opening new doors as well. We just yeah. have to see. Yeah. Um, NFTs, I think, are something that might have a certain perception as well. Um, we saw NFTs primarily get famous because of these digital photos that people were um, investing in and selling for very high prices. And, and now we've seen that market completely collapse um, after some of these pictures of, of cartoon monkeys sold for ridiculously high amounts of money. Um, and so people might get uh, kind of sour on the technology just because of that fad that hopefully has come and gone. But I mean, NFTs are so much more than that. Do, do you want to share for anyone who's not familiar with the technology, what, what an NFT is outside of the investment in a digital picture? Like what is the technology and how can that be used? Well, it's, it's like I said, with the validation of your knowledge, it's actually blockchain is having a protocol within one system, that's most of them are, Roblox is, is the, the protocol in, in Roblox. And it is actually saying that I agree, I give you the money, you're a good game developer, so I add to the chain my validation that you are good. It's actually peer validation. It is getting the schools out, it's getting the banks out, it's getting all these unnecessary people that involve, are involved getting them out. That's what, for me, the blockchain is. And an NFT, for now, indeed, it can be an image of a board monkey, for example, which is a scam, <laughs> I think. But we can NFT. Why can I not print out an NFT? I'm a good game developer. That can be an NFT. Nobody thought of it yet, but I hope that 
people listen to this and that some kind of um, metaverse will also be handing out NFTs as tokens of knowledge. Yeah, you think about the traditional degree and your, your school that you got your degree from has that record. You might get a printed version of it. If you happen to lose that, it takes a lot of work to get a new version of that digital, that physical record, right? I mean, all we're talking about is having a digital, um, verified by multiple people version of a record of something, right? It's actually very, very simple. Some people make it really difficult to understand, but it's just the validation aspect. And it is what you say. We now have it on paper. But uh, my school changed names, my university. I still have a paper with the old name of the university, which doesn't exist anymore. So my paper is worth nothing. It's not about me. It's about the name of the university. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, if you're trying to verify your, your degree with, let's say, a potential employer or somebody, you have to go submit this paperwork to them. Um, versus if if we were on a more accepted universal blockchain uh, you know standard, it would be very easy to verify that you have the degree that you're saying you have. And you can also see it as a backpack. We now only validate learning experiences in certified environments like universities, like some kind of like MIT certification or whatever. But every experience that we have is a learning experience. So if we can find technology to prove that we have this competence or that we can do these skills on a regular basis by using this technology in our corporations, then we always have the skills needed for the now, for the future. And that might resolve a part of the skill gap that I'm talking about in my book. Is it really coding that we need or can we verify a lot of other competences in these virtual worlds? that help us to grow as human beings, as society. Yeah. And, you know, I like that you talk about like learning verification because, you know, a lot of larger companies, I, I used to work for a large fortune 20 that had a very established L and D team. And um, you would be able to become certified or learn different skills and so on. But that was all within their, their internal ecosystem. And now I, if I no longer work for that company, um, Anyone else has to kind of take my word for the fact that I have those skills or I did those things and I can put it on my LinkedIn and maybe get some people to, you know, verify that, that I have those skills. But if we had some sort of universal system where not only could you take those skills from one job to another, but also what I would hope um, companies would do is, yeah, you can learn internally from our trainings, or if you go externally and learn these skills from whatever source you want that's now verified that you've learned those skills in the way that works for you versus the way that we're forcing you, like you said earlier, the checklist, we're forcing you to go down this checklist to learn skills. Well, and the good thing is that a lot of companies and, and institutions are experimenting with it. They are using AI to verify if you have the knowledge or the competences. And, and I have to be very honest. Um, I thought I had leadership competences and someone invited me to go into a VR metaverse environment with AI for leadership competences. And I was really like, no, I write about this stuff. I know that this does not work. So I got in with a, a lot of CEOs, really big CEOs with a lot of experience. And I was there, I can trick this system because on paper, I know everything about leadership. To be short, 10 minutes later, 
I killed the team. That was not the goal of the game. They had to survive. And actually, this case is in my book. Because you're in this immersive environment, you get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So you are your true self. And within 10 minutes, the AI knew that who I really was was not the person that I was doing in the game. So it was a real learning experience for me as yes, AI and VR can help with detecting competences. And yes, um, also for leadership. And yes, I found out that I lack some competences that I can work on. So I loved it. Yeah, that's great. You know, I think... Um... The traditional training model, even even a well-designed training that might have a simulation or some sort of practice activity, it's still not real. And and I know that that AI simulation, you said that the team got killed. Well, there's some real stakes there that you can't simulate in the real world. So you have to simulate in this AI or this VR, you know, whatever meta world that you're using. Um, you know, I, I think AI, a lot of times I see a lot of companies using it and what I consider to be kind of superficial ways. It's it's analyzing the person's needs and analyzing the content catalog and the AI is presenting courses to them or the AI might be, um, it, it, I, I actually used it in a really cool way where I was analyzing how someone did their work. And so the AI bot sits on the computer and analyzes their clicks and what they do. And the purpose of that wasn't even for the individual employee, it was to improve processes, right? Where can the AI recommend systems changes or, um, you know, improve some efficiencies here or there. So what other exciting ways are you seeing AI being deployed where it can help either learning or help performance of employees? Well, that's a really good question because that's why I have so many times that I say, what is AI in the book? Because a lot of people have no clue what AI is. We have machine learning, we have deep learning, we have supervised learning. It's actually a very big name for sometimes nothing. I see a lot of startups, I, I help some startups when they launch, claiming we have AI to develop the learning experience for you. And then I'm like, oh, I'm scared. Is AI something like in the field, making a decision about my future? Or is it just machine learning, like the very simple Netflix form that doesn't even know if I already had seen the movie yesterday? It still recommends me this movie. I saw it yesterday. So when we compare it with Netflix and micro learning platforms or learning experience platforms having this Netflix view, then I hope that their AI machine learning is better than Netflix. Then I talk about TikTok a lot. TikTok does the same. It recommends things that you might like. That's what I, in my LearnScape model, I call this bringing learning to you that you might really like and help you based on a lot of data points. And that's why TikTok is so interesting from a learning perspective. That's why they also claim that they want to be an edtech platform in the future. And it's what I always say, they're already beginning learning. I know teachers using TikTok as a learning experience platform at school. And that's because of the AI algorithms are so big. Another thing, and I'm not going to tell too much about it, is the ethical part of AI. How far do we want to go in making the decision about your future, what you can do based on AI data points? Because I talk about consilience in the book, seeing similarities in differences. Maybe I was a good surgeon, 
maybe I'm also a good, I don't know, construction worker. You might not see the similarities, maybe they are. And AI will never find these data points bringing that together. And I have real life experiences with those. Yeah, I, I think that is an important subject, but it is, it's probably a whole conversation all on its own of the ethical implications of algorithms, AI, um, you know, just we know so much about how the human brain works and the fact that these machines can can hypothetically in the wrong hands do do things to manipulate people in the wrong ways. We, we want to, and I don't like using the word manipulate, how about we want to influence people in the right ways um, and nudge them to do the right things and help them out. But um, there, there certainly are some ethical implications. And I think over the next five or 10 years, that stuff really has to be um, implemented from the ground level. And I'm glad to see some tech leaders really talking about that stuff. Um, well, you know, the last couple of years, you've been involved in technology and learning for a really long time. But the last couple of years since COVID came around and we saw the world kind of transform, we saw workplaces transform, we saw learning transform, we saw children's schooling transform. And, um, you know, it for, for adults specifically, now that we're, um, let's just say we're on the other side of this, let's hope that that continues. But we, we now see some very challenging things for a lot of workers in the workplace. Um, a lot of people are more disengaged from their work. We've Last year, we heard about the term, the great resignation. And this year, we're hearing the term quiet quitting. And I see those as the same thing in the fact that people are just not invested. They're not engaged with their work. And so they're becoming more disillusioned with the work that they're doing. Um, you know, all these changes, where, where do you see... Are we, are we in just like a temporary bubble with this stuff? Or do you see this stuff continuing to change the workplace and how people interact over the next five or 10 years? It was already there. We just didn't want to see it. Um, the future of work and young people wanting to have a work for purpose, wanting to contribute, the gig work economy, working on projects, creative workers, IT people, working independent on multiple projects at the same time. This was all happening before COVID. Only it was difficult to handle for organizations, for HR, because there were so many unknowns. And, oh, no, 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 we need to have the people all around for this meeting, and especially creative people, they need to be together. And no, 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 we can't work with freelancers. We can't do that. So we were holding back. And then we had the pandemic, which was this black swan, which for me is also a white swan if you think about hope, because finally we had to let go. And I know, for example, talking back about children, my own children, they were so happy because they could learn and do their projects at their own pace. They actually blossomed up. And I see the same happening in organizations, not for everybody, of course, it depends what work you do. But those organizations that are growing nimble for the future, they learned what happened in this period. They didn't use technology as a patch on the wound and trying to keep it up. They like to learn from everything that we saw back then. Um, we have discussions about, do we all need to go back to work? Or can some people that now feel like quitting because they don't have the feeling that they contribute or, or being hurt? or being heard, that's also very important. I think now is the ideal point, and I think that's maybe my, why the book is going so well, because I 
I discuss this. How can we learn from what happened to prepare for the future? Because it was always there. And the quit quitting, I have to say, it's a bit, little, little bit like the metaverse. It's a hype word. Because here in Europe, Belgium, we really don't have it. We talk about it, but the data say different. I work a lot of in, in the Middle East. It's the opposite. People want to go to work. They want to build the future, especially young people. They have just another thinking about nine to five. So again, organizations that want to build for the future, that want to do corporate branding well, they will not have that many problems with all this quit quitting and other buzzwords. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do think that that was probably something more centered in the U.S. than a lot of other places, because our, our country um, is so based on performance of the business and growth. And, and especially prior to COVID, people would kind of pour themselves and however many hours a week it took to to do it into that job, into that career, trying to move up, trying to earn more money. And and I feel like in a lot of uh, specifically like in European culture, there is a little bit traditionally better work life balance than what a lot of Americans find. And I think a lot of Americans finally realize like I can't just pour everything of myself into this job. I have to also they they realize hey I'm at home and I kind of like being here and I can spend time with my family and my dog and I can go out and have coffee with friends at ten ten a.m. on a Tuesday. Whereas before it's like 50, 60 hours a week, I was downtown in the office. And so I, it, it seems like there is some cultural differences there. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's something you've seen on the European side as well. Well, I have to see we, uh, we see differences even between the Netherlands and Flanders. And we are like very small in total together, like 15 million habitants to vote together. And still we see the differences. So it is true. Um, and as I said before, I, I've worked a lot in, in America as well. It is true. There is a lot more pressure on performance, but it's a different kind of pressure. Um, and I think maybe because of globalization of the world, because we couldn't travel anymore, I think the biggest win is actually there for the people in the US. If they now grab the opportunities that come out of the pandemic, and they don't want to go back to the normal, which was not normal anyway. I think the biggest leap to take is just maybe in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And when, and even within the U.S., it's funny that the country gets so lumped in, but there's so many mini cultures within this country. I live in Colorado, which I think has a very we, – we have a lot of tech companies here, a lot of forward-thinking businesses, but it's very different than – what I consider is the coasts, right? Your, your Silicon Valley, LA on, on the West coast, and then your, your New York and, and all those parts of the country on the East coast here, people would work hard and they'd build their business, lots of startups here, but then people would also really value going out and going for a hike in the mountains or going skiing in the winter. Um, so I think that th this culture where I live is more balanced versus like you, you look at, um, specifically like Silicon Valley or New York City, those were the cultures that I felt like were 24-7, work hard, never stop kind of cultures. And and you see changes. I see people who work for tech companies in Silicon Valley that they almost want to leave their very highly paid jobs and go open a coffee shop up in the middle of nowhere because they're so burnt out from this 
work, 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 code, code, code kind of culture that they've lived. And I'm hoping those companies can kind of shift. Um, what do you see? Do you what, what do you think these companies need to do to adapt to this future? Really good question. I was just thinking, uh, so the foreword of my book is written uh, from an American perspective. Um, it's from Walmart. And also I have um, an HR director of FedEx also in the book. And he also talks about digitalization. When he has an HR strategy and a learning strategy, I, I ask those people, is it like in central office that you decide this is how we're going to do it? This is how we're going to measure success because even performance management, which is a big topic in the book, if you have different cultures, different regions, how can you measure from different systems the same KPI, the same performance management? It's impossible. So we discussed the concept of um, globalization. So which means that the vision in the long term that stays the same. The values of the company, the things that they want to do with the people, with society, they stay the same. But the strategy to achieve those goals, those values, they are localized. And it works because for FedEx, I was talking to a person who was responsible for India, for South Africa, for Egypt, for parts of Europe. I think talking about different cultures, uh, those are huge differences. And, and they're, they're thinking about this. They keep the long vision in mind. Yeah, I, I, I think that the um, localization or regionalization of, of policies are, are true because you look at uh, companies that might, or not companies, countries or regions that are more developing. And, and I think people in those regions are more, um, kind of nose to the grindstone, I'm going to work hard. And that's because of the the traditions and the history where they didn't have as many opportunities. I used to work with folks uh, in India a lot. And, and those were the hardest working people I've ever met because a couple of generations ago, they would have never had the opportunity that they have today. Whereas I think in, in a lot of the Western world, we're a little spoiled. Um, and we've seen what a couple of generations have done and and so I think we have to to recognize that and regionalize. And and I did like that that your intro of your book was written by Brandon Carson, the head of L and D at, at the Fortune One, right, the biggest company out there. Um, he, his new I was book. Proud that he did it. Yeah, he, his new his book that launched earlier this year was great, and it talked about forward thinking L and D teams. Um, and and actually, I, in a couple of episodes, I have a. a a senior director who reports to Brandon at Walmart e-commerce, and she's going to be on here talking about her perspectives as well. So it's funny how full circle oh, wow. a lot of this stuff is. Yeah. Um, well, so you talked about what businesses need to do. What about employees? So if, if someone's an employee, and I know this is very general because people have different positions in different companies, but what do you think employees have to do to be successful in the next five to 10 years in their work? Oh, I come back to the why question. What is successful for me? How can I go there? So the, all these questions about thinking about the future, what does it mean for me to be happy? What is the world that I wanna create? And I think we need to think more and also dare to say to our executives, like, why is this important? And I'm trying to introduce this in many companies as one of the starting points to build a, a growth mindset and a culture. 
and also to help with the future of work. And as I said, I, I do a lot of work in, in, in the Middle East and even in India. And for them, why is seeing us like, why, like, did I do something wrong or even as a blame? And it's actually going back to what we also said, the competences that we had as child. What makes me happy? Can I be curious? What do I want to learn? Uh, because we will be learning more and more and more and more. And if you are having a burnout already now because you have to learn, yeah, then we need to find other ways to make learning the most enjoyable part of our life. That's why I think my next book will be The Learning Leader, <laughs> about really people. Yeah, yeah, that's a good transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about, because I've heard you talk about being a lifelong learner. And, th and that's a term I've heard for a very long time. It's not a new term. But, you know, a lot of people are learning the old way. And when I say the old way is, you know, we, we all got brought up in schools that were based on models from 150 years ago, where you sit down passively and you learn everything about a subject. And then eventually one day you might go apply it. You have to read a book or sit, sit through a lecture or learn all these things. And, and I think the new way is more like what you talked about your kids are doing, which is learn a little bit, go and try it out, experiment learn from your peers, um, learn in short bursts. And so, you know, there's, there's that really big shift that I don't think has caught on either in children's schooling or in adult learning in most formal environments. Um, you know, there, there's just too much to know nowadays. I think with this future, we can't be experts in everything. Most, most of us certainly can't. I think over time, eventually you can. Um, but, you know, when you see this lifelong learner, what what are your thoughts on how someone can be successful as a lifelong learner and make sure that they're not falling into their old habits with learning? I'm going to change it a little bit. Do we need to learn or find the knowledge? If I ask my children, do you know when the World War started? They will say, yes, I know. And they take their phone and they will say, Siri, when did it start? It's not about learning and memorizing like we did at school. That was the old system. Today, we need to find the information. That's the lean part of learning. There is so much to know. We can't know everything. I have, I think, quite a good memory. But still, the bridges that I make here is not when was it that the world war started, but how can I find these data in my head or somewhere else? So I think we should shift also about what is learning. Is it finding information, learning how to find the information, using information, be critical about all the data that is coming to us? What is learning? And I think that's something that we have to think about too. And I think many organizations that um, are shifting to learning ecosystems, they don't provide long LMSs anymore they make learning accessible, make knowledge accessible. I was talking about knowledge experience platforms. So it's almost as thinking out loud, I need to perform this job and the knowledge and how to perform comes to me. We see this in, 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 uh, in the industry where in maker spaces, you have to build, for example, an engine of a car, like these really expensive supercars. They're always tailored made. So you can't learn how to make this engine because you only need this information once. 
you can have AI and technology be your coach, be your assistant. So 70, 20, 10, forget it in this part because we're all one, the symbiosis of the human and the machine to become one learning super brain. That's what I'm talking about. So I think we should focus less on the school way of learning as you have to learn this now, memorize it for 10 days and then do a test because with the forgetting curve, it doesn't work anymore like that. Then it becomes an obstacle. Then it is like a tournament because you will never be successful in everything. That's amazing. And it sounds like you're shifting to more of that five moments of need, Bob Mosher style performance support. So rather than having to learn everything, have access to the answers that you can look up on the fly. Is that kind of where you're going with this? You will come to the chapter where Bob Mosher helped me. <laughs> yes, I think that's, that's, that's very important. And um, what I add to five moments of need is I think also the, the involvement of non-workplace uh, related learning but using the same techniques, getting, and that's what I call that lean learning. So you see that I use a little bit even of 70, 20, 10, because the idea behind is still valid. The way that companies use 70, 20, 10, like 10% needs to be in a classroom, 20%. No, that, that's old stuff. Even Jennings is saying it doesn't work anymore like that. But I think organizations, if we don't know, are talking about ways to measure performance, to deliver learning. I think we should look more on what is the added value of technology and the data that we get from the technology to make learning stick, to make learning applicable, because that's what it is. You want to be better in performing, better in, I don't know what, it's also about well-being and how can innovation help us with well-being? Because if you're not happy, you will not learn. Your head will block. It will not happen. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you talk about well-being and that really struck a note with me because I feel like a lot of at-work learning should just be focused more on helping people to do their jobs better and easier rather than trying to teach them a bunch of things because any any knowledge you acquire is just a means to an end. That That's not the end result. The end result is not you knowing things. It's you being able to do things differently. And I think most people, depending on what their career is, they, they don't need to know everything about the job, the industry, the products, the systems. They just want to do their jobs easier. They want to have less stress. Um, a lot of people get really burnt out because, man, this system always breaks or this process is really hard to do. Or whenever I do this thing, I have to send a, a ticket to this other team. And, you know, it, it's so frustrating. And so we should really be thinking like in more of a systems thinking mentality of trying to make things easier for people. And I, I do think that five moment, moments of need, we look at those specific moments and we try to make things easier at that specific moment of when they're trying to apply things or, or whatnot. Yeah, and I think technology and yeah, innovation will help a lot with that. Absolutely. Um, tons of technology there, but, but uh, that could probably be its own discussion onto itself. Um, what about skills? So we, we, if we're talking to learning professionals, um, people who are trainers, instructional designers, you work somewhere in a formal learning capacity. Um, I find that a lot of people are so focused on learning the theories and learning more about design. And, and those things are valuable. I'm not going to disparage those. 
But I find that a lot of skills that aren't traditionally associated with this field, things like marketing, copywriting, um, you know, agile type product design, there's a lot of benefits of learning things outside of this discipline and applying them to this discipline. What, What are some skills that you've found? And I know we've talked about technology, but is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you think people who are in a training or development capacity should, should pick up on in order to get better at what they do. Future thinking. That's something having an open mind for the future, because what I see a lot of people in these professions, they are always uh, running behind the facts. We are developing learning or training for problems we had. And I think if, if, if you learn to anticipate the future, then you can build things that are more relevant for people tomorrow. You know that uh, actually, I, I asked some people in L&D around the globe, what was the time between having a question from the business to develop learning and implementing it? I don't know if you know it, but it's between three months and two years. Oh gosh, that makes me two so years. mad. So by the time those people have found another way. So it's about future thinking. Another very important aspect that I discuss in the book is like, who is responsible for L&D? Because if we talk about the skills that L&D people need, HR people need, then, then, then we're always already limiting us. There is for me not an L&D team anymore. We're all part of the same organization. And depending where we are, we need to take up extra tasks. You talk about marketing, but why do you see them still in silos? Why, why can't this be one big team? Why do we still have uh, HR sometimes, and I hope nobody's listening to this, but HR reporting to a CFO. Oh my God, it still happens. No HR should be together with the chief digital officer, the sidekicks to build a strategy of the organization is the human, the machine, and the vision of the CEO together. Those three, they also decide on the learning strategy of the organization. So when you talk about skills needed for L&D professions, just make yourself the sidekick of the CEO and become a strategist, a futurist, and you will find your job easier as well. That's great, Katja. I, I wish we had more time because there's like three things you just said in there that I want to dive more into. So maybe, maybe we're going to have to do another talk some other day. But, you know, you talk about the time to release products. You know, I, I, I've been a big advocate of that agile product focus. Like, let's get things out quick, an MVP, and let's iterate it versus this has to be perfect and it's going to take forever to develop. You talked about silos and I, the most effective learning organization I've ever been in didn't report to HR, it reported to the business uh, unit that we helped. And that was so much more effective of not having that far silo. So I think we could probably dive into those topics much more in depth. Um, we might just have to talk about it another time because our, our time's running short. I, I do want to, you know, we've talked so much about gaps that exist today and we talk about the future. You know, I, I want to leave the audience with a few maybe more tactile suggestion. So, um, you know, if someone is working in, maybe they're in a formal L&D role, we do have a lot of people listening that are in just business leadership, uh, you know, people that own their business. 
what would be like just the number one thing that they can do to make sure they're setting themselves up for the future? I'm going to give you three. Okay, that's fair. Three very short things. If you want to develop a learning organization or a learning ecosystem, nimble for the future, first of all, work in teams. Cross-functional teams involve all the stakeholders. That's number one reason. Also, those that are not into the future, involve them because they can become your biggest ambassadors. Number two, don't look at problems. Don't design stuff for a problem now. Look at the future. Think of opportunities for growth. It's a mindset. It's, it's just a mindset difference. And number three, get your leadership involved. I sometimes make the joke, if your CEO is not involved or if your CEO is still printing or having print his mails, the organization is not ready for the future. Great. Those are, those are amazing. And I like that those were short and actionable. I wasn't planning on a follow-up, but I just want to have one follow-up to that third one, which is um, a lot of people in training roles sometimes find struggles with the term is getting a seat at the table. So um, if people struggle with having that voice with leadership or getting the respect or um, buy-in from their leadership, what advice do you have there? Be bold. Just go there. <laughs> They're just human beings. Make a very simple, what I call burning platform, a one pager. You can make it very easy. Why should we do it? Why if we don't do it? Who is involved? Very small things. It's actually also in my book, prepare a one pager. And it's a call for urgency. If we don't do this, this will happen. The risk is big. And it only takes us this, 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 and this, a one-pager, nothing more. Be bold, go to them. Yeah, I, I like the one-pager. Um, sometimes people in this line of work can be overly descriptive and give too much information, and leaders really like those quick messages. They don't have time to read all these ideas. And also, it stops innovation in a company. If you have a culture where one-pagers can reach sea level, then you have a culture where change can happen. They don't have time to read big manuals or PowerPoint presentations, forget about PowerPoint presentations. Yep, exactly. That, that's why I'm a big advocate of everybody learning a little bit about copywriting because that's about being persuasive in very short messages um, versus uh, sometimes people in, in more traditional training roles, they have to write a, a dissertation on it and, and <laughs> C-suite and above does not have time for that. Well, um, you know, our time's running short. Um, I'll put this in the show notes, but what are the best places for people to connect with you or find your stuff if, if they're not already connected with you? Well, just LinkedIn is always very easy. You can follow me and I promise you, if you follow me, I follow you back. I don't have the follow button open because then I have a lot of bots following me and I'm not so fond of following bots. <laughs> um, you can also find me on my website, Habit of Improvement. Uh, which is very easy. You can also, of course, find my book anywhere on the globe right now. Also at Walmart, of course, <laughs> but also at Amazon. Um, I'm a Belgian, so we don't use Twitter that much, but you can also find me on Twitter. It's Katja. And then Habit of Improvement was too long, so it's H-O-I. <laughs> so that's how you can find me. I'll, I'll link all of those in the show notes, uh, your LinkedIn, your Twitter, um, a link to your book. Um, and 
a link to the, the blog site, Habit of Improvement. Um, but I do have one final question, and this is something I ask every guest, and I just always like hearing what people say is, um, what's just one thing that you've learned lately, either personal or professional, um, that just something interesting that you've learned or something that's been a benefit to you? I've learned that I thought I was open to a lot of things, like, for example, cultures. And I learned that even I sometimes have a very fixed mindset and that I sometimes have to learn and to think outside my own feelings. And I'm talking about feelings. So the one thing that I've learned, I thought I was good in leadership, but I'm only good in leadership when it comes to theory. I'm a very emotional person, apparently. That's why I killed my team, because I was saving myself. So that was my big learning moment. <laughs> well, getting getting humbled is good for all of us. So thank you for sharing that learning. Um, Katja, it was great getting to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. I feel like we have so much more to talk about, so we might have to do this again one day. Best of luck on the rest of your book tour and, and, and all your travels coming up. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.